0: As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. As-salatu wa salamu ala seyyidil mursalina wa khatimil nabiyyin. Muhammadin wa ala ahlihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Amma ba'du fa'udhu billahi min ash-shaytanir-rajim. Bismillahir-Rahmanir-Rahim. In the law, who amala, ikatahu, you saloon, alan, nabia, you amanu, salu, alayhi, was salimutsleem. Allahumma sali ala, Sayyidina, Muhammad, in Nabi, lo, me, wada, alayhi, was salimutsleem. Respect to listeners, we continue with the theme of the traits of hypocrisy as detailed by Allah in the Quran. And also by the in the Hadith, the descriptions that we find are primarily <coughs> to do with the hypocrites at the time of the Prophet What they said, what they did, how they behaved what was the nature of their interaction with the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims. That's what the Qur'an describes. And from that, we can glean lessons. And we can familiarize ourselves with the specific traits and characteristics Words, deeds, and behaviors of these hypocrites at the time of the Prophet, so that we can protect ourselves from such behaviors and such characteristics. This is exactly what the Prophet has warned us about. (coughs) I've been through quite a few verses. The last set of verses which we were discussing is a set of verses in Surah Al-Baqarah in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks of a munafiq, one hypocrite. And Allah describes him in the following words And there is of the people one whose words please you in the worldly life. And he makes Allah a witness over what is in his heart. And he is the most quarrelsome of the adversaries, most argumentative of the adversaries. When he turns away, he strives on earth, in the land, to cause corruption therein. And he strives to destroy land and livestock. وَاللَّهُ لَا يُحِبُّ الفساد. And Allah does not like corruption. And when it is said to him, Fear Allah, be wary of Allah, arrogance in sin seizes him. فحسبه جهنم So, jahannam is sufficient for him. وَلَبِئْسِ الْمِهَادِ An evil in abode it is. So, this is the set of verses that we were discussing. We've almost completed it. I've explained most of it already. Uh, just a quick recap. Allah tells us about these specific traits of a munafiq. Number one, his words are pleasing, but only in respect of the dunya. They can only benefit someone in the worldly life, but not in the afterlife. Number two, one of the Twists in the meaning of filhayat al dunya in the worldly life is that his words are never about something meaningful to do with the akhirah, but they are always to do with the worldly life, ultimately. So even if he speaks about religion, the purpose behind him talking about religion is the dunya, not deen. Because this is one of the traits of hypocrisy. A munafiq always gives preference to the dunya over thee. That's what matters to him. I've said repeatedly, short-term benefits and gain, shallowness, superficial behavior, short-sighted vision, short-sightedness. Everything is about immediate. Instant gratification, immediate gain. And in order to achieve that, everything is justified. The munafiq always gives preference to the dunya over the deen, over the akhirah. And that's what this verse says, too. The other thing we've learned about this particular set of verses which describe the traits of a munafiq is that he will falsely swear in the name of Allah and he will claim to make Allah witness over what's in his heart. So he will plead and protest his innocence and remonstrate and be very vehement and vociferous and passionate in his pleading, in his pleas, in his argument. Not not argument in terms of debate, but his... citing evidence to prove himself to you, and in the process he will cite the name of Allah, he will invoke the name of Allah, he will swear in the name of Allah, he will swear oaths, and all of this is just cheap talk. al And he is the most quarrelsome, the most argumentative of the adversaries. Arguing, debating, quarrelling, fighting, picking <clears throat> a fight, resisting, rejecting, reacting to everything, this is a behaviour of a munafiq, refusing to accept. It's almost like every conversation becomes an argument. Every conversation becomes a fight. There's no tolerance, no acceptance, no relaxation. Relaxation in the sense that the person is not relaxed, is not accommodating, is not accepting. Everything is a problem. Because that's his behavior, that's his character, that's his attitude. And as the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said in a hadith related by Imam Bukhari and others from Umm al-Mu'mineen A'isha radiyaAllahu anha, inna abghadha al-rijali illa Allah al-aladdu al-khasim, indeed the most, det- one of the most detested of the men, of people, in the sight of Allah, is al-liddu al-khasim the most argumentative, quarrelsome one? Another thing which we learn from this set of verses about the traits of the munaf- this particular munafiq and hypocrite is that he works. You see, everyone sa'i al و- meaning he strives in the land. But the meaning of striving in the land is, this is to do with Sa'i. Sa'i means walking, moving, walking rapidly, running, hastening. This is why in hajj and Umrah we Form circuits between the hillocks of Safa and Marwah. And this, these circuits between Safa and Marwah are known as Sa'i. Because Sa'i means to move rapidly, to walk quickly, or even to run, to hasten. Allah says in the Quran in Surah Al Jumu'ah Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu idda nudi ilis salatimi yawmil jumu'atifas'au ila dhikrillah. Or believers, when the call is given for Friday, the prayer on Friday, then, فَسْعَوْا إِلَىٰ ذِكْرِ اللَّهِ Then hasten. Make your way quickly. Hasten. To the remembrance of Allah, and the meaning of the remembrance of Allah here is the khutbah of Jum'ah. So, originally, سَعِي means to hasten, to walk quickly. To move quickly, to run even. And what Sa'i means in this context and in the context of other ahadith and even verses, such as the verse in which Allah says, In Surah Al-Layl, That your striving is diverse. So originally, Sa'i doesn't mean striving. It means to move quickly. So what Sa'i originally means in all of these, in the context of these verses and ahadith, is that every one of us moves. We get up in the morning, we rise, we make an effort. We do something. So, Someone's, someone gets up in the morning and earns their living. Of course, everybody earns their living, or at least something to that effect. But along with their normal routine daily life, everyone's always doing something. So some people get up in the morning to make the world better, To make other people's lives better. To help people. To assist people. To bring good. Joy, happiness, comfort, pleasure. In other people's lives too. That's their effort. So the the meaning of sa'i. In the context of these verses. Is the effort that a person makes on a daily basis. So the munafiq. Allah says sa'a al-ard, he moves in the land, when he moves, when he gets up every day, when he makes his efforts, when he endeavours to do something, what is it? What's his effort? What's his daily routine? What's his normal pursuit? What does he pursue? So the pursuit of the munafiq is not to bring about good, but rather to cause corruption. The pursuit of the munafiq, the effort of the munafiq, is always, is invariably, to spoil things. Because that's the original meaning of fasad. To spoil things to corrupt, to contaminate, to hurt. Never to do good, because that's the nature of the munafiq. And Allah does not like corruption. Allah does not like spoiling. Allah does not like sin in any form. Allah la yuhibbul The final thing that we learn from this set of verses about the munafiq, is that, when it is said to him, fear Allah, arrogance and sin seizes him. Now, I've already explained this on numerous occasions in various ways, but I must say this point can never be overemphasized. This is so crucial. This is one of the most subtle and insidious characteristics of hypocrisy that can creep into us, because it's so common, which is, when we are corrected, we react in anger, we reject the advice, we refuse to accept the correction, we resist and we insist on being right and we offer very con- contorted, convoluted arguments and, re- arguments and reasons to prove ourselves to be true and innocent and it's embarrassing for an onlooker, for someone else listening, for a third party It's truly embarrassing, it's cringeworthy. Others will cringe at our attempts to justify our behavior, yet we feel no shame. And it's strange, because the amount of effort that's required, the energy that's expended in doing so, the cost to our emotions, our trustworthiness, our image in the sight of others, the cost to the trust that people hold in us, the cost to our relationships, our friendships. Not an iota of this cost is worth it. It's too high a price to pay. It's actually cheaper. It's simpler for a person to put up their hands and say, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Or, if we are advised, and the person is not the victim, so we don't have to apologise to them, we accept and we say, you are right, I'm wrong in this. Help me, advise me, assist me, remind me. It's actually cheap to do that. It requires less energy very cheap price to pay, no price to pay at all, in fact. The opposite route of resistance and justification and refusal to accept has such a high price, both in the eyes of the creation and even with the Creator, Allah. I've mentioned before, sorry, saying sorry, apologizing, is judo. One of the core concepts of judo is that you use the other person's strength against them. So, unique amongst all the martial arts disciplines, the principle of judo is that you do not have to use your own force and your own strength, as much as possible, all you do is use the aggression and the strength and the momentum of your opponent against him. So he comes rushing at one of the most famous moves of judo is, he comes rushing at you rather than stand there and resist. All you do is at the last minute, you twist and turn, and using, you grapple him, you grab his arm, and using his own momentum, you swing him and throw him over. And all it requires from you is no resistance, no resistance whatsoever. In fact, resistance is harmful on this occasion. All it requires from you is some dexterity and twisting and turning at the right moment and it can be done quite gracefully. So, saying sorry, apologising is emotional, verbal You, you, If someone's angry because you've, you've wronged someone, they react in anger. They become angry. They become aggressive. They choose to argue with you. There's a lot of pent-up anger, frustration, and aggression, and heat and energy that's being dissipated, all against you, all directed at you. If you say sorry, sincerely, because subhanAllah, even our sorry at times, even our apology is insincere. in fact it's a taunt. And what we suggest in our apology is that the person is wrong to feel insulted or offended. So sometimes the way some people apologize is, all right then, all right, sorry then. That's insulting. But a sincere apology. It. Disarms the other person. It leaves them without argument. It leaves them without evidence. What can they do? What should they do? If they continue to be angry, if they continue to vent their anger and seethe with rage, then you've disarmed them. They have no proof, no evidence, no hujjah, no argument against you. You've sincerely apologised. You've made amends. All their anger is now directed at themselves. They are hurting no one but themselves. So, it's natural to get angry, it's human to get angry, but it's devilish to refuse someone's apology. This is why Imam Shafiq, rahmatullahi alayhi, used to say, or oh, it's been quoted from him, من استغضب فلم يغضب فهو حمار ومن That whoever is provoked and then he doesn't become angry. So if someone's genuinely provoked and he doesn't become angry then that person's a donkey. But if someone's forgiveness is sought and they refuse to forgive, then that person's a devil. So it's natural to become angry, fine. As the Prophet Sallallahu explained in the hadith, there are four different people when it comes to anger. Someone who becomes angry late, and whose anger subsides early, that person's the best. Someone whose anger arrives quickly, so the person's angered very easily, and their anger subsides with great delay. This person is the worst. So they are quick to anger, late to calm down. They the worst. The best is someone who's late to anger, quick to calm down. And then the other two in between are equal. Who are they? Someone who is quick to anger, but also quick to calm down, or someone whose anger comes at delay, but whose forgiveness and whose subsiding of their anger also comes with some delay. These two are in between, and they are equal. So it's natural to become angry. But what we need to do is become aware, become introspective, realize okay i've become angry fine i can control it one of the greatest lessons some you know sometimes tasbih what's the benefit of tasbih? subhanallah 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 allahu akbar Allah, akbar Allah, but Allah, la ilaha any tasbih repetition Astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah. Repetition. Repetition hammers the message home. So in Asian languages, if someone repeats something frequently, we call it tasbih. So he may not be remembering Allah or doing dhikr. If someone's constantly repeating something, we call it tasbih. The person's doing tasbih of this, the person's doing tasbih of that. So a good to So, one of the few, there are some things that we should constantly remind ourselves of. And one of them is that whenever you find yourselves in a situation, learn to repeat this to yourself. Don't make it worse. Simple, three words. Or oh, four words. Don't make it worse. Memorise it. Do the speech of it. And when you're in a situation, repeat to yourself, remind yourself mentally, don't make it worse. Simple. It could be anything. You've seen something that makes you angry. Fine. Anger is natural. But realize that you've become angry. Now what do you do? Islam doesn't tell us. Nowhere in deen does it say that, well actually, what the Quran and the Hadith tell us is that you can't eradicate anger. Anger is human. So we will naturally become angry. What deen tells us is to control that. And to ensure that you do not act on the dictates of that anger. Because that's dhulm. If you react disproportionately, you will be guilty of injustice, of aggression, of dhulm. So maybe the anger is justified, but the subsequent steps that you take may not be justified. And when a person becomes angry, one's mind, one's judgment, one's cognition, all become clouded. A person doesn't think straight. They don't. Like a man was angry, he was arguing with someone. The Prophet and the Sahaba, radiyallahu were watching from a distance and listening. So the Prophet said to the companions around him, I know a word which if this person... Says, will dispel his anger. So, one of the people who was with Rasulullah and who heard him say that went over and told that man that there is something which if you say, your anger will disappear you will dispel your anger say a'udhu billahi shaytan shaitanir rajim now because the person was angry this is a good description of wa idha lahu bil when it is said to him fear allah arrogance and sin seizes him this is why the ulama say most likely this person was a munafiq because when the advice of Rasulullah was given to him, that look, you're angry, but say one thing which, if you will utter, will dispel your anger, which is, I seek refuge in Allah and protection. I seek the protection of Allah from the accursed devil. What did the man do? He reacted, he rejected. He resisted all that we have just been discussing. And what was his response? He said, do you see that there is a shaitan with me? And in one narration, do you think that I am mad? Do you see madness in me? Why he said that is because the idea was that, are you suggesting to me that I I should seek protection from the devil? Because I am mad and the devil has caused junoon and madness in me and in one narration do you see shaytan do you see a devil with me so he totally rejected the advice and that advice came from rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam this is what anger does so in any situation learn to repeat to yourself remind yourself don't make it worse which is the equivalent of it's, yeah, that's a bit longer which is When you're in a hole, don't dig deeper. When you're in a hole, don't dig deeper. So, the abbreviated version is, don't make it worse. So, to become angry is natural. And I was talking about apologising. So, it's natural to become angry, but when someone apologises, then one should accept that apology. And going back to the verse, when it is said to him, Fear Allah, arrogance and sin seizes him. So, as I was saying, it, we can't ever overemphasize this point. We need to learn humility, we need to learn acceptance we need to remind ourselves constantly that I am not perfect, I am far from perfect. I am in need of help, of reform, of assistance to better myself. And anyone who sincerely offers that should be acknowledged, appreciated and thanked. Anyone who can help me become better. But if someone's resisting, and rejecting, and reacting, then wallahi, that person is beyond help. This is why, what's the, what's the next word? What are the next words in the verse? What are the next words? Allah says, when it is said to this munafiq, fear Allah, what happens? What's his reaction? to bil ithm, arrogance and sin ceases. A person becomes, refuses to accept. I remember relating that once when we were young. There was a group of us children. We, there was was a man, we confronted him as a group because he had done something or was attempting to do something quite horrendous. So, because we were children, we were a group of children. So the whole group of us, we confronted him. And he had a beard and a foe. So he said to him, why why did you do that? So his reaction was, how dare you speak to me without respect? Don't you realise who I am? Look how young you are and look how old I am. Show some respect. How dare you talk to me so disrespectfully. Subhanallah. In a flash, in a switch, he tried to twist and change and divert the whole conversation from his sin and from his horrendous behaviour to our guilt. From his guilt to our guilt. And what was our guilt? What was our sin? What was our crime? Our crime was in his view, that we were disrespectful. We weren't talking to him respectfully. So, I'm not saying he's a munafiq. Remember, I've told you before, I've told you before, we cannot identify any individual as a munafiq. These lessons are for us, that we fear such behavior, because this has been identified as, the behavior of, as a behaviour and a trait of hypocrisy, which is refusal to accept. When someone tells us, fear Allah, in fact, that's what we told him. We said to him, fear Allah. And his reaction was, how dare you speak to me so disrespectfully. So arrogance in sin seizes a person. This is a good example. When someone tells us we become indignant with anger, we refuse to accept. We are more concerned about the fact, not that we violated someone else's rights. Not that we contravened the command of Allah. We're not concerned about that. We're more concerned about the fact that by someone telling us our ego is pricked. So we react in anger. Such a person is beyond help. This is why the next words are when it is said to him, Fear Allah, be wary of Allah, arrogance and sin seizes him. For hasbuhu Jahannam. So Jahannam is sufficient for him. There's no redemption for such a person. No redemption. No help. Allah himself says, فَحِسْبُهُ جَهَنَّمُ What can you do? If someone is being corrupt and sinful, and you then advise them not to be corrupt, not to be sinful, not to be hurtful, not to do what they are doing, instead of listening and accepting, They then compound that corruption and that sin with arrogance. So they add arrogance to it, and defiance, and resistance. So, what can you do? That's why Allah says, فَحَسْبُهُ جَهَنَّمَ. What a bit sin mihad, an evil in abode it is. So anyway, these are some of the traits. I'll end with this, because I've covered this in two, three weeks. There is one more verse, the next verse, which I recited last week as well. It's not to do with hypocrisy. It's not to do with a munafiq. But it's actually in the same context. It's a contrasting verse. It's to do with iman instead of nifaq. And it's to do with a mu'min instead of a munafiq. And it's a beautiful comparison because earlier on Allah said, وَمِنَ you are يُعْجِبُكَ And of the people there is one whose words please you in the worldly life. And then Allah begins this description of the munafiq. Here in the next verse Allah says, and of the people there is one. So earlier on, Allah said, Of the people there is one whose words please you in the worldly life. And here Allah says, And of the people there is one who does what? الله. One of the people there is one who sells his soul, seeking the pleasure of Allah. Wallahu ra'ufun bil ibad. And Allah is most compassionate with the believers, with with the servants. So, as I said, these verses all deal with hypocrites at the time of the Prophet primarily. So, this verse, does it deal with a mu'min primarily according to many narrations? Yes, it does. It was revealed about Suhaib ibn Sinan al Rumi radiallahu anhu. Not shaib Suhaib, famous Sahabi anh, And often people like to mention Bilal al-Habashi, Bilal the Abyssinian, Salman al-Farsi, Salman the Persian, Suhaib al-Rumi, Suhaib the Roman. This is the <coughs> same Suhaib al-Rumi radiyallahu an Suhaib the roman However, <coughs> just one or two points of interest. Suhaib was not Roman. Salman al-Farsi an was Persian. Ethnically, uh, he was genuinely a Persian. Bilal an was genuinely an Abyssinian an was not a Roman. It's a common misconception. He was actually an Arab. And he was born and he was from the area of Mosul in Iraq. His parents, his father or his uncle, members of his family, were high-ranking employees and civil servants in the Persian Empire. And in those days, I've mentioned this in detail before, the Persians and the Byzantine Romans were engaged in a multi-generation war. And so there would be constant raids on each other's territory, Numerous battles, and in fact, when Allah says in the Quran, the whole surah, surah al Rum has been named after after the beginning verse Alif Lam Mim Ghulibat Rum Alif Lam Mim. The Romans have been vanquished. So this is a reference to one of those key, decisive, major battles between the long-running feud. It's in the long-running feud and war between. Persia and Byzantine Rome that the Qur'an is referring to, in which the Persians were victorious. So, because An's family members were civil servants and high-ranking employees of the Persian Empire, and not only that, but uh, that region fell under the Persian Empire anyway. So in one of those raids from the Byzantine Romans and their vassals, Suhaib was captured as a child. And he was taken away as a captive to Byzantine Rome. And he grew up there. So he actually became fluent in Greek, and this is another important point. In, men, in the Ahadith and in the Qur'an, whenever we speak of Rûm, like Mim al-Rûm, the Romans have being vanquished, and the word rumia, which would suggest Latin, the language of the Romans. However, we're now talking about the Byzantine Roman Empire. Not the original Latin Roman Empire of Italy. This was the later generation. And rather than Latin, Greek was the dominant language. So, strangely, although it's called Rumia, what's meant is Greek. And this is why some of the earlier non-Muslim translators, like the European, well, as many of the European translators and Orientalists, when they would translate the Qur'an, they would normally translate with the words as the Greeks have been vanquished, not the Romans. So even though they were the Byzantine Romans, their language and their culture was predominantly Greek. Their philosophy was Hellenistic. Greek philosophy, the language and culture was Greek. So, Suhaib grew up becoming fluent in Greek. And then, according to some reports, he was then sold and taken as a slave and captive to Makkah Al-Muqarramah. According to some reports, he fled and ended up in Makkah. Either way, he so Heber was captured as, a, as an Arab child, and brought up in the Greek language and culture of Byzantine Rome, and then eventually he ended up in Makkah Al-Mukarramah, eventually as a free man. Because he was fluent in Greek, and according to reports, he, because he was deprived of the Arabic language for such a long time, he actually spoke Arabic with an accent. So Suhaib was a born native Arab because he had spent considerable time in the Greek language and culture in the Byzantine Roman Empire as a captive. His Arabic suffered, he became fluent in Greek, and he actually then spoke Arabic with an accent. So, This is why he was called Suhaib al-Rumi, Suhaib the Roman. He's a remarkable companion, رضي And this is whom Allah speaks of in this verse. So Suhaib was not ethnically a Roman. He was considered a Roman because he was fluent in Greek. And he had grown up as a captive in the Byzantine Roman Empire, which was predominantly Greek in language and culture. So Suhaib so, al Rumi radiyallahu anhu, when he ended up in Makkah al Mukarramah, he was there even before the revelation of the Qur'an. And this is why he himself says that I used to associate with and keep the company of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam even before he received the revelation of the Qur'an. He was his friend from before. And then when Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam proclaimed Islam, one of the very first people to embrace was Suhaib al-Rumi Very first people. Because he had no family, he was alone, he was also one of those who was tortured. Along with Bilal Ammar ibn Yasir, Khabbab ibn al-Arad He was also one of those who was tortured. So, eventually, he fled Mecca al-Muqarramah and did hijrah. Now, in Mecca, he spent his life as a freeman, as a freeman, not as a slave, as a result of which he engaged in trade, and he amassed a considerable amount of money. Not, he wasn't extremely wealthy, compared to the other individuals of Mecca, but for someone who had come alone, he had made a fortune for himself. He had made sufficient wealth. So when he left Makkah al-Mukarrama to do hijrah, he didn't carry any of it with him. So he travelled alone. The Quraysh pursued him, and eventually they caught up with him, and he was alone. So the Quraysh bounty hunters and others who were with them, when they caught anh, he, this resulted in a confrontation at a distance. They called out to him and they said, "O oh, Suhaib, you came to Makkah penniless, without wealth. And now you leave Makkah with your wealth? How can that be? We will not allow you to go. So Saheb, he, he was a brilliant archer. So he removed his quiver and laid out his arrows from his quiver in front of him. And then he said to the Quraysh, he said, Oh Quraysh, you know that I am one of the most skilled archers amongst you. I do not care, I will fight you till my last hour. So you have a choice, either fight me, and I will die fighting you, but I will fight you till my last hour. Or, if you're interested in my wealth, and I haven't brought any of it with me, I've buried my treasures and I've hidden them. So if you want, I can reveal to you and disclose to you the location of all my wealth, secret wealth, and my hidden treasures. And all my wealth is yours. You can have my wealth as long as you leave me to continue with my immigration and to my destination of Medina. So the Quraysh said, fine, tell us where your wealth is. So and revealed to them the secret location of every single dirham of his wealth. He did not withhold a single thing, so they let him go. Suhaib arrived in Medina. When he arrived, he met some of the Sahaba in the lava tract just outside the city or some of the settlements. And when he met some of the Sahaba anhum, they said to him, Your trade was profitable, O oh Sahib. Your trade was profitable. She said, what's the meaning of this? So they took him to Rasulullah Sallallahu Wasallam and he said to him, رَبِحَ ya O Suhayb." Your trade was profitable. And according to some narrations, he repeated this Your trade was profitable, your trade was profitable. Meaning, he had given over all of his wealth, sold his life, savings, and possessions and earnings, just so that he could still earn the pleasure of Allah by completing his hijrah and being with Rasulullah. This is what the reference of the verse is, according to many scholars. وَمِنَ النَّاسِ مَن يشري نفسه الله And of the people, there is one who sells his soul, seeking the pleasure of Allah, and Allah is most compassionate with the servants. So this set of verses mentions two people. Of the people, there is one whose words please you in the worldly life, and he makes Allah a witness over what's in his heart, and he is the most quarrelsome of the adversaries. That is the munafiq. And of the people, and then the verses continue, I've covered them in detail, and later, and of the people, there is one who sells his soul, seeking the pleasure of Allah, and Allah is most compassionate with the servants, and this is the mu'min. So here we are, some of the traits of nifaq, and some of the traits of iman, some of the characteristics and behaviours of a munafiq, of a hypocrite, and of a true mu'min. A munafiq, gives priority to the dunya over deen. A mu'min gives priority to the deen over dunya. A munafiq has a very short-term vision. He suffers from myopia, short-sightedness. When it comes to the deen, a mu'min is far-sighted. A mu'min's glance, a mu'min's gaze, a mu'min's sight is fixed on the Akhirah. A munafiq only sees short-term benefits, instant gratification, regardless of the ultimate consequences. A mu'min only sees the long-term goal and objective, regardless of the short-term discomfort or suffering. In fact, Suhaib radiyaullah was so highly regarded that when Umar ibn al-Khattab anh, was martyred and he was stabbed in Fajr Salah whilst leading the Muslims and then he was taken away and then he knew that these were his last moments on earth. Such humility. Such humility. A towering man in status, in stature, in build. He overwhelmed everyone. He filled people's minds and hearts with fear, with awe. That was Umar. Everyone addressed him as Amirul Mu'mineen. But such humility when he lay there bleeding. And the people around him realised that he will not survive. And he realised that he will not survive. Someone addressed him as Amir al-Mu'mineen. He said to him, do not call me Amir al-Mu'mineen, for this day I am no longer the Amir of the believers. Such humility. On that occasion, he did and and He enjoined the good and forbade the, the evil. As he was lying there, someone came in, a young man, and as he was leaving, the young man was leaving, Umar and saw that his cloth was hanging below his ankles. In that state, on his deathbed, In that state of weakness, he called out to him and he said He said Oh young lad, raise your izar, raise your cloth, for it is cleaner for your cloth and more fearing for your Lord. On his deathbed, whilst he is bleeding to death, in such pain and in a subdued voice he still enjoined the good and forbade the evil. Furthermore, Umar anh, when he realised that he was no longer, he wasn't going to survive, and he then convened a consultative committee to decide amongst themselves who will be the leader of the believers after him. So he appointed six and he said, you shall... Decide amongst yourselves and it shall be one of you six. He also told them, subhanAllah, that Abdullah ibn Umar, my son Abdullah will join you in that committee. But he cannot be selected. Allahu Akbar. Such force, such fear of Allah. Not a hint, not a whiff of nepotism. That Abdullah will join you. Why did he say Abdullah will join you? Umar was a man who was a visionary, who was highly intelligent, who was ahead of his age in every way, and who treated people as they should be treated. So his consultative committee throughout his life included young men, including teenagers, Abdullah ibn Abbas He recognized people's worth. He knew that if someone had qualities, then they should be accepted, irrespective of their age, because that was a reflection of himself. Because Umar he was actually part of the Senate and the assembly of Makkah Al-Mukarramah in the Darul nadwa Even though he was a very young man. He was extremely young, and yet he sat in the same Senate, occupying a seat, along with the most senior people of the Quraysh, al walid ibn al and others. Because he was a young man, but extremely intelligent, far sighted, a visionary, capable and wise, full of wisdom and sagacity. So, Umar allah in his later years, he recognized the same wisdom, perception, knowledge, and talent in, in young men. So he would ensure that anyone who had that ability and talent would be part of his committee, irrespective of their age. So Abdullah ibn Abbas, عنه, a teenager, he was there. And many young men. So he recognized that worth in his own son, Abdullah ibn Umar, عنهما, and truly, Abdullah ibn Umar, عنهما, was highly intelligent and capable. Not only is he one of the most prolific narrators of hadith, But, one of the most knowledgeable of the Sahaba, but many of the Sahaba actually wanted him to become Khalifa. But Abdullah ibn Umar at all stages resisted. He had no interest. So Umar ibn khattab عنه, said of his own son that he shall join you but he will not be appointed, he will not be selected as a Khalifa. But he will join you because of his intelligence, his knowledge and his wisdom. Not a hint, not a whiff of nepotism. So Umar عنه, I was speaking about Suhaib ibn Sinan al-Rumi, he was so highly regarded that when Umar ibn an convened this committee, and said, you shall select an Amir and a Khalifa from amongst you. Until they had not concluded their deliberations, and until they had not selected a Khalifa, someone was still required to lead the Salah. Out of all of the Sahaba, Amir al-Mu'mineen, U'r ibn al chose, Suhaib ibn sinan al-Rumi, He led the Sahaba, on the sujood and the musalla of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam after Abu Bakr after the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Abu Bakr and Umar radiyallahu anhuma it was Suhayb ibn Sinan al-Rumy radiyallahu an who led salah until Uthman radiyallahu an became the khalifa so that's how highly he was regarded. But that verse is to do with him. And of the people, there is one who sells his soul, seeking the pleasure of Allah. And Allah is most compassionate with the servants. There are many other verses that deal with hypocrisy and the hypocrites. One of the set of verses is in, is in Surah Al Imran. In which Allah Subh'anaHu Wa says, Ya, you ma Akbar, Allah says, وَإِذَا خَلَوْ عَضُّوا عَلَيْكُمُ الْأَنَامِيَ مِنَ الْغَيْضِ قُلْ مُوتُ بِغَيْضِكُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ عَلِيمٌ بِذَاتِ الصُّدُورِ إِن تَمْسَسْكُمْ حَسَنَةٌ تَسْوُهُمْ وَإِنْ تَصِبْكُمْ سَيَأْتُ يَفْرَحُ بِهَا وَإِنْ تَصْبِرُوا وَتَتَّقُوا لَا يَضُرُّكُمْ كَيْدُهُمْ شَيْأً إِنَّ اللَّهَ مَا يَعْمَلُونَ مُحِيطٌ اللَّ as confidants, as your inner circle, as your confidants. Those who are not from you. Specifically, Allah subhanahu, as I said, all of these verses ultimately and primarily refer to and discuss the original munafiqun and the hypocrites at the time of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa So Allah is advising the Sahaba رضي الله عنهم that O believers do not take as your confidants those who are not from you. Bitana means the inner circle the interior. Originally means the underlay or the inner layer. So, if you have a cloth, you've got the outer layer. And if you have a second inner layer, that inner layer is known as bitana. And the outer layer is known as dhara. So the exterior and the bitana, the interior. This is why in the Qur'an, min istabrak that it's interior, their interiors are from silk, brocade. And another name for interior and exterior. So interior is bitanah, exterior is dhihara, cloth originally. Another name for the cloth interior is shi'ar, and the exterior is dithar. So shi'ar is that part which clings to the body, the interior. And the reason I'm mentioning this is that this is the original meaning of the words. But later, it became used uh, for those who are the closest to a person. So Bithana means those who are your closest, your confidants, your inner circle, your best of friends. Just like bithar. Dithar means exterior, and shi'ar is similar to bitana. And of the ansar, the Prophet said, Al ansar, the ansar are the dithar, sorry, are the shi'ar, and other people are the dithar. So the ansar are my closest, they are my inner circle. So Allah says, O believers, do not take as your bitana, your confidence, your inner circle your best of friends, those who are not from amongst you. Who were they? At the time of the Prophet وسلم, it was those who would come and pray salah in the masjid. They would mix and mingle with the sahaba, عنهم, but they would also mix and mingle with their other friends. And when they were told, look, if you are believers, if you are with the Prophet wasallam, then why aren't you fully loyal? Why don't you disassociate yourself?" From the enemies of the Messenger of Allah. And what was their response? No, we're trying to keep it good with everyone. Good with the Messenger of Allah, good with them, others as well. We're trying to bring about peace and harmony and reconciliation. We are conciliatory. We are trying to bring about peace. As Allah says, <laughs> Lo and behold, they, verily they, they are the corruptors. They are the spoilers, but they don't even realize. So that was their attitude. So then, if they are mingling and mixing with others, under whatever pretext, whatever their reasons, if they are mingling and mixing with others, then Allah advises the Sahaba, radiyallahu anhum, them, that do not take them as your bitana, as your inner circle, as your confidence then Allah reveals their behavior to the sahaba radiallahu anhum Allah says la ya'lunukum khabala they do not fall short in harming they spare no effort la ya'lunukum ay la yanqusukum khabala fasab They do not fall short. They spare no effort in hurting and harming you. In causing mischief to you. That's their reality. So forget their beaming smiles. Forget their grins. Forget their sweet words. Forget their pleas and their oaths in the name of Allah. Forget their protests, protests of innocence. The reality is... They spare no effort in harming you. They love that which you suffer. When you suffer, he actually pleases them. When you are hurt, they enjoy it. They relish your pain and your discomfort. That's a reality. قَدْ بَدَتِ الْبَغْضَاءُ مِنْ أَفْوَاهِهِمْ See, the Sahaba, رضي الله عنهم, they had suffered. They had suffered. So as Allah says, لا يحب الله الجهر بسوء من القول إلا من ظلم Allah does not like, open, offensive speech. Except in the case of one who has been oppressed or wronged. Someone's wronged. They will speak out. The poor soul, that's the only thing they can do. So if a madhmum speaks out, if a madhmum says something, which under normal circumstances would be considered offensive and inappropriate, then truly that's not to be accepted. But if a muzlum says it, it's overlooked, it's excused. So the sahaba عنه, had suffered. So they were, not all of them were diplomatic all the time. I was speaking about Sahib ibn Sinan al-Rumi on one occasion in al-Madinat al munawwarah in the seventh year of Hijra, after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah when Abu Sufyan came to Medina to ratify the treaty because one of the allies of the Quraysh had attacked one of the allies of the Muslims. And an attack by one member of the alliance on any member of the other alliance resulted in a violation of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, And now the Muslims were in a very powerful position So, Abu Sufyan, who had not yet embraced Islam, he came to Al-Madinatul Munawwarah to ratify the treaty and to plead with the Messenger of Allah to ensure that that, and to protest to him that the Quraysh were not aware and were not privy and were not responsible for the plans of their allies to attack the allies of the Muslims. And so, this violation should be disregarded, and the treaty should continue as it was and be ratified. So when Abu Sufyan came to Medina, he wanted to go to speak to the Prophet ﷺ. So he, was, he approached Abu Bakr anh, and he was walking with Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr was a nobleman of the Quraysh. He was very composed and calm and diplomatic. So as he was walking with Abu Bakr, anh, Bilal, Suhayb, Ar-Rumi, Bilal al-Habashi, Khabbab ibn al-Arat and others, they were seated together, as always, best of friends. And they saw Abu Sufyan. Now, they were shocked that Abu Sufyan in Medina, so even though he was with Abu Bakr, anh, they spoke out. They, these were the ones who had been tortured, Sahib, Khabbab, Bilal, radiyallahu anhum majma'een. So, so hey, they, they said, they spoke out and they said, it looks like the swords of Allah have not yet found their place in the enemies of Allah. So, harsh words. So, Abu Bakr, عنه, being diplomatic, being noble, he said to them, Attaqooluna هذا lisayyidi قريش wa that is this what you say to the master and the leader of the Quraysh and their elder? They went and complained to Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. They were offended by what Abu Bakr radiAllahu an said to them, "Allahu Akbar." The Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam summoned Abu Bakr radiAllahu an and he said to him, "O oh, Abu Bakr." Did you say this to them? And he said, yes, ya Rasulullah. Prophet said, Oh Abu Bakr, when you said this to them, perhaps you have angered them. And if you have angered them, then perhaps you have angered Allah. So Abu Bakr radiyallahu actually went and apologized. He apologized to khabbab suhayb and Bilal radiyallahu anhu So they, they had suffered. So, of course, they were the ones who were very staunch. They wouldn't associate with any of these people. But other Sahaba, رضي الله being noble, being diplomatic, because of their relations beforehand, especially the Ansar, because they had family ties and previous diplomatic relations with various other tribes, many of whom later, some of these became Muslim and others became Munafiq. So they continued with those ties. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is addressing them. That do not take these people as your trustworthy friends, as your inner circle, as your confidants. The truth is, this is their reality. They spare no effort in seeking harm and hurt for you. They love that which you suffer. Rank hatred has poured forth from their mouths. And what their hearts conceal is far greater. So, even though they claim that we are Muslim, this is nifaq. A munafiq is never stable, never consistent. Yes, consistent in his inconsistency. A munafiq is consistent in his inconsistency. A mu'min is consistent. A mu'min is consistent. So a munafiq, you can never work him out because at times he will say something in your favour. And at times he will also let slip a few things which make you question him. The mouth is the spout of the jug of the heart. So if you have a jug, you have a container, you have a spout and a sprinkler. There's a saying amongst the Arabs that the spout can only pour what's in the container, what's in the jug. The spout can only pour what's in the jug. And they actually use that to refer to the mouth. That the mouth can only utter that which is in the heart so no matter how much you try to control your mouth your mouth will always reveal ultimately what's in your heart it will reveal so the mouth is the greatest revealer of secrets it can only pour forth it can only pour what's in the heart so قَدْ الْبَغْضَاءُ مِنْ أَفْوَاهِهِمْ So a munafiq as well, even though a munafiq likes to keep up that pre- uh, pretense and the munafiq likes to keep up that show and that facade and he puts on a mask, every now and then, when the person drops their guard, something will slip out. Something. This is the meaning of قَدْ الْبَغْضَاءُ Hatred has revealed itself from their mouths. And what their hearts contain is far greater. So the spout pours a few drops, but there are gallons and gallons of it in the jug. The sprinkler sprays a bit, but there's a whole reservoir of it in the container in the jug. So if someone's mouth reveals, hatred, know that there is a lot more there, a lot more. And this is why the mouth is the interpreter of the heart, the mouth is the revealer of the heart, the mouth is actually the face of the heart, it's a spokesperson for the heart, it reveals everything. And this is why when we swear, we if you control, if you clean your tongue, your hearts will become clean as well. Wallahi, in a hadith late by Imam Tirmidhi, the Prophet says, every morning, every single morning, the limbs and the organs of the body plead with the tongue and say to the tongue, اتق الله فينا فإنما نحن بك فإن استقمت استقمنا they say, O tongue, fear Allah in us, fear Allah in respect of us. Because we are as you are, we are by you. We stand by you because of you, we are as you are. If you are straight, O tongue, we are straight, and if you are bent, we are bent. So the tongue can actually shape the heart. Allah says in Surah Al Ahzab. Ya أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمُنُوا اتَّقُوا اللَّهُ وَقُولُوا قَوْلًا O believers, be wary of Allah and say a straight word, say an upright word. What will be the reward of you speaking straight? What will, you, what will be the reward and the result and the beautiful consequence of you saying something upright and straight? وَقُولُوا قَوْلًا سَدِيدًا What will be the reward? يُسْرِحْ لَكُمْ أعمالكم. Allah will make good your deeds. You speak good, Allah will ensure that your deeds are good. If your tongue is straight, your deeds are straight, including your heart. If your tongue is bent and twisted, your deeds are twisted. Your organs are twisted. So, a hypocrite's tongue will reveal a lot. This is why when people swear, it's not innocent. When a person swears, it reveals a lot of filth and rot from inside there. It truly does. When a person swears, know this much that swearing, that foul, filthy language, that vulgarity, is not innocent. That vulgarity is the steam only. It's only the steam of the reservoir of filth contained beneath, inside and above. This is why the Prophet sallallahu he was so pure of speech and pure of heart. The Sahaba radiyallahu describe him as that he wasn't vulgar in speech, nor could he vain, nor could he feign or affect or s- simulate vulgarity. Meaning, he was so pure of speech and the heart that never would he utter any profanity, and not only that, but if he had to pretend or if he had to act if he had to simulate profanity he was so pure of heart and speech that he couldn't even simulate or affect profanity or vulgarity, he couldn't do it that's how pure he was of heart and speech so the two are connected but... hatred has come, appeared on their tongues from their mouths and what their hearts conceal is far greater Allah says, indeed, we have made clear the signs for you, if only you realize. These are the signs. That, how can you, O oh believers, consider these people, your inner circle, your bitana, your trustworthy ones, your confidants, your friends, when? They spare no effort in hurting and harming you. They associate with your enemies. They do not share in your grief. They do not sympathize with you in your suffering. In fact, to the contrary, they rejoice at your suffering. And you can... Occasionally detect their hurtful, hateful speech. These are the signs. They are not your friends. So if you do understand and if you have sense, and these are the signs, <inaudible> Allah then goes on to reveal more of their traits. <inaudible> These are such a people that you love them, but they like you not. You are good with them, because you are still going by your family ties, your tribal ties. One, And not only that, you still sympathize with them because you consider them to be believers. Despite all their behavior. But we are now revealing to you. That this is their reality. So be wary of them. You love them, but they don't reciprocate that love. You are courteous to them. You like them. You show them love and compassion and mercy and affection. And they repay you. They reciprocate that good behavior on your part with hatred. They don't like you. And then Allah says, you should realize, even though you believe in the whole book, they don't believe at all. They are hypocrites. You believe in the whole book, you should be the ones realizing and actually being able to detect these signs in them. When they meet you, they say, We have believed. When they retreat into solitude, into seclusion, what do they do? al they bite their fingers, seething in anger and rage against you. What's a solution for them? What's a solution for such a hypocrite? who, in front of you, all love and affection, and away from you, biting their fingers, seething in rage besides themselves in rage what's the solution allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says Pul mutu say die in your anger inna allah bi indeed indeed allah is well aware all knowing of the contents of the hearts of the bosoms allah explains further about their shamata their Schadenfreude their gloating in tamsasukum hasanatun. Earlier, Allah said, "What <inaudible> do they love that which Yusufa Allah elaborates here? In tamsasukum hasanatun tassukum, wa in tusibkum sayyatu yifrahu biha." If good fortune meets you, it hurts them, and if ill fortune befalls you, they rejoice over. Allow me to spend one or two minutes here. These are some of the traits of hypocrisy. What lessons should we be learning from the, this set of verses? As I've always said, in the, in the context of discussing hypocrisy, we shouldn't be sitting here trying to figure out who's a hypocrite. No, that's not the purpose of these verses, because we can't. We cannot. We do not know the state of anyone's heart. We cannot judge. There was a man who was a drunkard. He used to drink frequently. He used to be disciplined. He used to drink again. And this was at the time of the Prophet. Imam Bukhari, Rahmatullah relates this hadith, Umar radiallahu anha says, the Sahaba radiallahu anha had nicknamed him Himar because of his antics, donkey. He used to make people laugh. But he had this one weakness. That he would drink at the time of Rasulullah sallallahu So, once when he was brought again, Sahaba anhum began disciplining him. Someone said, "How shameless is he? Repeatedly he is brought before Rasulullah sallallahu and disciplined, yet he doesn't desist. Prophet actually said of that person, whilst he was being disciplined for drinking, Prophet wasallam said, what I do know of him is that he loves Allah and his Rasul. Who are we to judge? So we aren't here sitting, judging The purpose of these verses, for us, is not to identify hypocrites or traits of hypocrisy in others. It's actually to identify traits of hypocrisy in ourselves. So one of the, some of the lessons are, a hypocrite wishes good for the believers. لا يعلونكم خبالة. a, mu'min, a hi- um, Oh, sorry. A, a hypocrite does not wish good for the believers. A mu'min wishes good for the believers. A hypocrite spares no effort in hurting and harming others. Just as Allah said in the earlier set of verses, وَإِذَا تَوَلَّا سَعَى فِي الْأَرْضِ فِيهَا وَيُهُلِكَ وَالنَّسْلِ وَاللَّهُ لَا يُحِبُّ الْفَسَادِ The effort, the endeavor, the normal practice, the day-to-day routine of a munafiq is, to, is fasad, spoiling and corruption, hurt and harm. A mukmin does good. La khabala. A mu'min does not is not the one who spares no effort in harming or, har- uh, in harming or hurting others, no. Wish good for everyone. <laughs> they love that which you suffer. And this is an uh, elaboration of that, of that sentence. إِنْ حَسَنَةٌ وَإِنْ تُصِبْكُمْ سَيِّئَةٌ يَفْرَحُوا بِهَا When good fortune meets you, they, it hurts them. And when a calamity befalls you, they rejoice. Subhanallah, this is something we should focus on for a few minutes. Don't we do this? We can't be happy for anyone. We are full of hasad. Envy. We burn green in our envy. We seethe in rage. We can't see anyone else happy. really can't. And worse, when a calamity befalls someone, we smile, we laugh, we grin, we gloat, we rejoice, we indulge in shamada, schadenfreude. I say Schadenfreude because shamata, this is in Arabic, shamata is al farah bi musibat adu being pleased and rejoicing over the calamity and misfortune and suffering of an enemy. In reality, there is no single word in the English language that translates or describes the word shamata. So even in English, it's part of the English language now, but it's, an, it's a German import. So the word is actually German, schadenfreude. So it's part of the English language, it's a German import. Maybe after the end of this month, we shouldn't be using it, Brexit. So, Um So, schadenfreude. Rejoicing over the suffering of others. In fact, in German, Schaden means suffering and Freude means joy. So the joy of suffering. Someone else's suffering. That's what Shamatah is. And Imam Muslim and others all relate a hadith from Rasulullah sallallahu, alayhi, sallallahu alayhi. One of his frequent du'as was he used to seek Allah's protection min shamatatil Ada. From the gloating, the rejoicing, and the shard and and the shamata of the enemies. Even Rasulullah would seek Allah's protection from that. So don't we do that? We can't be happy for anyone else, and Allah forbid if someone else suffers a misfortune or a calamity, we rejoice, we feel happy. These words should they be describing us or should they, or are they actually describing the munafiqeen, the hypocrites in them hasanatun if good fortune meets you it hurts them and if a calamity befalls you they rejoice at it is allah describing the munafiqun at the time of rasulullah sallallahu is allah describing us we are guilt, we are very we are very guilty of we may not like to admit it, but our hasad in our hearts. We don't like to see anyone progress or proceed, let alone supersede us. We don't like anyone to be equal to us, let alone supersede us or surpass us. And if someone does surpass us, we seethe in anger, in rage, and we wish some ill to come to them. That's exactly what Hasad is. Hasad is envy, bitter envy. The desire for that ni'mah and blessing to be removed from that person irrespective of whether one gets it himself or not. That's actually the definition of hasad. So if someone has something, you learn of it, you see it, you burn from within. You do not want that person to have it. Irrespective of whether you get it or not. So you couldn't care less. So if someone has a million, hasad isn't that, why has he got a million? Why don't I have a million? I wish that he no longer has that million and I have that million. That's not hasad. Hasad is when a person thinks he's got a thousand more. I don't care, I don't want it. Whether I get it or not, it doesn't matter. He should not have it. أَهُمْ يَقْسِمُونَ رَحْمَةَ رَبِّكَ نَحْنُ قَسَمْنَا بَيْنَهُمْ مَعِيشَتَهُمْ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا وَرَفَعْنَا بَعْضَهُمْ فَوْقَ بَعْدٍ دَرَجَاتٍ Allah says, أَهُمْ يَقْسِمُونَ رَحْمَةَ رَبِّكَ What? Do they distribute the mercy of your Lord? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's division and distribution. That's his choice. Or what? Do they envy the people that which Allah has bestowed upon them of His grace? So that's exactly what hasad is, and that hasad drives us to rejoicing at the suffering of others and not feeling happy at the benefit and at the blessing and the good fortune of others. This is not the attitude, this is not the characteristic of a mu'min, it's the characteristic of a munafiq. That's what the munafiqun have always done. So this is what, probably one of the greatest lessons of this set of verses, that in we do not commit shamata, we do not rejoice at the suffering of others. Imam Tirmidhi, rahmatullah, relates a hadith in his sunan. Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said وَآثِلَتُ bin Al رضي عنه, relates his hadith لَا تُذْهِرِ الشَّمَاتَةَ لِأَخِيكَ فَيَرَحْمَهُ اللَّهُ ويبتليك, that do not express gloating and rejoicing and joy and schadenfreude at your brother lest Allah has mercy on him and actually embroils Im- you in his test and try Imam Tirmidhi declares this hadith to be Hassan, i.e., acceptable, and many ulama have accepted the hadith as acceptable. However, some have not, and therefore, according to some ulama, this hadith is unreliable. But in any case, I've related the hadith to you with the grading. Imam Tirmidhi declares it to be acceptable, and many ulama have accepted the grading of Imam Tirmidhi, but many others haven't, and they regard this hadith to be unreliable. In fact, some have gone to the extent of saying that this hadith is fabricated, and that's another discussion. But on the majority, the ulama have declared this hadith to be either acceptable or weak, but not fabricated. In any case, sometimes I have to give lengthy explanations for every single thing I utter because in a 90-minute speech someone picks on one hadith, three words, one word and creates a mountain out of a molehill. So, like once I gave a speech. It was a 90-minute speech and it was to do with unity, and love, and tolerance, and acceptance. And someone came up after the speech and accosted me in front of, the, in front of a whole group of people who were meeting me. I said to me, brother, you related many hadith, but you never gave any of the references. So what are your references for the hadith? So I said, Okay, which hadith are you talking about? So he said, Well, many of them. So I related a few hadith. So then I started mentioning the references. Oh, <clears throat> this hadith Fulnah relates in this kitab, fulna relates in this kitab, and I just listed a whole series of names. And many of these names were the uncommon ones. And I must admit, I'm a human being, and I was a bit miffed, annoyed. Because this is what it does. You speak for 90 minutes about tolerance, love, compassion, unity, the ethics of disagreement, and it takes one genius to come up. And with one sentence, pour water over your 90 minutes efforts and speech. People go away. Not remembering what you said, like, if you have a thousand people in a congregation and 999 of them are all seated and silent, engaged in the remembrance of Allah and listening attentively to the Jumu'ah khutbah, and you get one idiot who stands up and who says something silly. When everyone goes back after Jumu'ah, who remembers the Imam or the khutbah or the 999 sane ones? Everyone remembers the idiot and what the idiot said. It's human nature. So I was a bit annoyed. So when I related and rattled off all of these names to him, I then in my annoyance said to him, "Okay, then, brother, what difference has this made to you? What difference has it made? What difference do any of these names make to you? I say Bukhari relates it in his kitab. I say Tahawi relates it in his kitab. I say Funa relates it in his kitab. What, do, what difference does it make to you? Abu Naim relates it. Ibn Sa'id in his tabaqat. Funa in his funa. What difference does it make to you? How would you know any better? <laughs> Alhamdulillah. That was his reply. Alhamdulillah. Uh, thank you, brother. Jazakallah khair. Not jazakumullahu khairah or jazakallahu khairah, jazakallah khair. So it's a gross mispronunciation. It shouldn't be, it's not jazakallah khair, it's jazakallah khair and jazakallahu khairah or jazakallahu khairah. Our teachers used to emphasize this. because if a person's displaying Arabic, making a display of the Arabic, at least get the Arabic right. So, that's why I had to mention this about this hadith as well, that uh, lest someone pours water on my whole speech because I related the hadith which some ulama regard as being fabricated. Ibn Hibban, rahmatullahi alayhi, he regarded this hadith as being fabricated, but the latest scholar, Imam Tirmidhi, related the hadith, he regards it as being Hassan acceptable, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, rahimahullah, of the 9th century, he regards it as being... Acceptable. He accepts a grading of a dhirmidhi. And many of the ulama. I don't want to... Uh, the details are fascinating because this is the topic of hadith. But Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa in this hadith says, Do not express rejoicing and shamata and gloating and schadenfreude over the suffering of your brother, lest Allah has mercy on him and embroils you in the suffering and in his trial. So this verse actually speaks of this trait of hypocrisy, of rejoicing over the misfortune of others, of gloating at the suffering of others, and not being joyful, not sharing in the joy of the believers. We should train our nafs and our soul. You know, the one who isn't envious, he is at peace. Wallahi, he is at peace. This is why the poet says, لِلَّهِ To Allah belongs the beauty and the marvel. To Allah belongs the marvel of envy. It begins with the envier and it kills him first. It kills him. The envy is killing the envious one. It burns the envious one. As the other poet says, Wa Hasudi jawarat ma kana arfil That if it what if when Allah wishes to reveal a virtue which has been hidden and concealed, Allah gives it the tongue of an envious per- person. So when a person has some gift of God, gift of Allah, which is hidden from others. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to reveal it. Allah raises an envious person and gives him a tongue. So no one knows anything. And then this envious one goes around burning from within. Have you heard? Have you heard? Fulan." Funah has this accomplishment. Funah has that accomplishment. And the mu'min says, Oh, masha'Allah, I never knew. Alhamdulillah. Allahumma zid fazid, zid. Allah, increase him. So the fire in the envious person actually diffuses the fragrance of that hidden virtue. Because the poet says, وَإِذَا أَرَادَ اللَّهُ نَشْرَ طُوِّيَتْ أَطَاحَ لَهَا لِسَانَ حَسُودِي فَلَوْلُ اشْتِعَالُ النَّارِ فِي جَاوَرَتْ مَا كَانَ يُعْرَفَ الطِّيبُ عَرْفِ When Allah wishes to expose the virtue or reveal the virtue that has been hidden and concealed, Allah gives it the tongue of an envious person. For if it wasn't for the burning of the vicinity of the Oud tree, the beauty of the fragrance of Oud would have never been known. Because Oud, Oud just means a stick. And that's why the Arabs used to call Hindi, the Indian stick, because Oud is uh, derived from a tree which is infected. It's very rare because for a proper natural Oud tree to mature and for Oud to be derived and extracted from that tree, it takes a hundred years. So it takes a hundred years for that tree to mature, for the infection to set in. It's the infection which causes this growth and mold. And then when fire ignites it, the fire burns the infected bark of the tree. So it's actually infected. This then diffuses the beautiful fragrance of root. So oil, is extracted by pressure, but originally, but that oil is what burns. But it's, that arises from infection. So, for a proper rood tree to grow and mature and to be infected in order to release this fragrance, it takes almost up to hundred years. This is why oud is very expensive. Traditionally, it was only the Arabs and the Asians and the Indians—oh, not just the Indians, but mean Easterners—who would use oud. But now, it's probably one of the most prized commodities. In Western fragrance as well, oud. Normal fragrances cost forty pounds, but anything with just the name of oud can go up to two hundred. So oud is oud. But as the poet says, if it wasn't for the inflammation and the burning in the vicinity of the oud tree, the beauty of the fragrance of oud would have never been known. So he likens that. So. Hasid has a lot to do with fire. The fire burns from within. This is what causes us to rejoice at the suffering and misfortune of others, and which prevents us from being happy at the good fortune of others. May Allah give us this attribute of iman, and may Allah protect us from this characteristic of hypocrisy, which prevents us from doing so. Anyway, the verse continues. I'll end with this. I've taken a enough of time. May Allah subhanahu wa taala protect us from these traits of nifaq. Allah then ends the verse with the words wa wa in Allah That if you are patient and if you are fearing of Allah then their ploy their plots will never harm you. Verily Allah encompasses all that they do. So yes people will always scheme and plot against us whatever happens is written. It's the qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But as a measure, the most we can do is to be patient and adopt taqwa. Sabr and taqwa. Sabr and taqwa. In many places throughout the Qur'an, this is what's mentioned. Sabr and taqwa. The whole summary of Surah Yusuf. Everyone loves Surah Yusuf because they all think it's about romance. Wallahi. Everyone thinks... Everyone loves Surat Yusuf. People say, will you do tafsir of Surat Yusuf? I get, not so much now, but before requests. So what are the, I don't get these requests anymore, and I'll explain why in a moment. Before, I used to get a lot of requests. And you know what the requests were? Sheikh, can you do a speech on the Jal? Ya'juj ma'juj, the Gog and the Magog, the beast, the signs of the Day of Judgment. Oh, Surat Yusuf. Of so you get the pattern, it's all entertainment. One of the reasons I don't get this anymore is because of Netflix. <laughs> so everything's catered for. So people love horror, superstition, and Game of Thrones. That, that all fits in. Yajuj, Matjuj, Gog and the Magog, the beast, the signs of the Day of Judgment. Or Surat Yusuf. Why Surat Yusuf? Everyone thinks it's all about love and romance. Allahu Akbar. Imam Suddi, rahmatullahi, relates in his tafsir. Although it's, an, it, it's a narration, but it's not definitely not to the level of a hadith. But Suddi relates this in his tafsir, but it's a good point. It said that when Yusuf, alayhi salam, was in the dungeon and the cupbearer of the king and the baker, they both saw dreams, so they wanted the interpretation of the dreams. So they decided, look, there is this pious man, Yusuf. And Allah says, they came to Yusuf, for uh, So uh, that uh, they said to him, oh, Yusuf, can you, you know, we see you as a pious man, can you interpret the dreams for us? But according to Imam Suddi, when they approached him, and they sat down with him and they spoke to him, they said to him, Yusuf, we love you dearly. So they prefaced their conversation with the words, "They love, we love you dearly. So according to Imam Suddi, Yusuf salam, replied to them by saying, don't express your love to me, i.e. keep your love to yourselves. Why? Everyone who has claimed to love me has hurt. My brothers claim to love me, they hurt me. Imratul Aziz, the woman of the nobleman, because of whom I am here in this dungeon, she pursued me, she tried to seduce me, because she claimed she loved me. Everyone who has claimed to love me has hurt me. So do not speak to me of love. So Surah Yusuf is not about love. So what is it about then? What's a summary of Surah Yusuf? مَن يَتَّقِ اللَّهَ وَيَصْبِرْ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُضِيْعُ Indeed, whoever is fearful of Allah and who is patient, Allah does not allow the reward of those who do good to go to waste. Here as well, Allah says, If you are patient and fearful of Allah, their plotting and their scheming will not hurt and harm you. And if someone says, well, that doesn't make sense, Yusuf salam did suffer. He adopted taqwa, but he suffered. Subhanallah. That's the suffering of the dunya. That's the suffering of the dunya. We are speaking of the suffering of the akhirah. Eternal pain and suffering. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us amongst those who do adopt sabr and taqwa. May Allah make us amongst those mu'mineen who have these beautiful qualities and traits of the Anbiya and the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. May Allah protect us from the traits of nifaq and hypocrisy as detailed in these verses of the Holy Qur'an. وَصَلَى اللَّهُ وَسَلَّمُ عَلَىٰ عَبْدِهِ وَرَسُولِ نَبِينَا مُحَمَّدِ وَعَلَىٰ آلِهِ وَصَحْبِهِ اَجْمَعِينَ سُبْحَانَكَ اللَّهُمَّ وَبِحَمْد أستغفرك وأتوب إليك